Good morning, church. This, uh, this may be kind of a rough beginning because I have to start by making a confession publicly. Um, I, I, I am going to unburden myself and I am going to uh, uh, publicly repent of my judgmental attitudes. Here it is, if you're ready for it. I didn't think Jimmy Fallon would make a very good Tonight Show host. I, seriously, okay? Now, in my defense, the Saturday Night Life stuff I don't think was all that great. His jump into movies was worse than Norm Macdonald's and Rob Schneider's combined. Okay? And you don't even know who that is. No. See? Yeah. I'm not even going to mention their movies because you haven't watched them. And so I thought The Tonight Show was basically deep-sixed when they named him the heir apparent a few years back. I mean, you got Johnny Carson, you got Jay Leno, and you got Jimmy Fallon. And the only thing he's got in common with those guys is his letter, name starts with letter J. That's it. That's it. And so I stand here today saying that I have, I have judged him falsely because he is hilarious. Okay, and if you, haven't, if you haven't watched some of the clips, they're fantastic. One of the main reasons is because of how he has transformed interviewing guests. Because if you go to The Tonight Show now, you don't get to just sit down and sip coffee and talk about whatever, your upcoming show or, and see a movie clip or whatever, and then shake hands and hug and, and be on your way. No, 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 you, oh great celebrity, get to play dumb games with the, with the host of the show. Okay, that's what you get to do now. And, and there are quite a few of them that are quite funny, but I'm going to show you one of my favorites right now, which is Egg Russian Roulette. If you have not heard that, if you've not seen this one, it's amazing. So I'm just going to show it to you and let it be, and you're going to ask yourself, what on earth does this have to do with the sermon? That's hilarious, right? It takes me right back to like junior high youth group, except Tom Cruise is there. And so I knew that this video clip would work for everyone because either you're like me and you know that this month is the 30th anniversary of Top Gun, a movie which shaped your life, like me. Or you're in the other camp, you just don't like Tom Cruise, and you're like, he gets egged in the face twice in like two minutes. That's beautiful, okay? That's why we knew this would work for everybody, okay? And, I, and this may be a sign of immaturity in your preacher. I will let you, you know, judge and maybe repent of your judgmental attitudes later publicly like me. I don't know. But when I was reading the passage that we're diving into this week, this is what I kept coming back to. And here is why. Those eggs may look exactly the same on the outside, but boy, they are nothing alike on the inside. And when you go and make the decision to crush one of those babies on your forehead, you know the difference. There is no mistake in the hard-boiled ones for the raw ones, right? And that reminds me of another reality, which is this. There are two kinds of people in the church, and they may look identical on the outside, but they are not alike on the inside. And when the pressure is on to be an image-bearer of Jesus Christ, that distinction, however well it might be masked on the outside, is going to be very, very significant and really quite impossible to deny on the inside. So I, 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 need to, I need to make another confession. I set us up in the reading this morning. I did. But in my defense, again, so does Luke. Okay? 
he offers us another glowing review of the followers of Jesus in Jerusalem and the followers of the way. And, and we're tempted to think that all he's doing is just kind of restating the same ideals that we saw in Acts chapter 2. But that's not what he's doing. The whole reason that you have Acts 4, 32 and 30, through 37 as this image of this community living in self-sacrifice with one another, living in real sacrificial community with one another. It's not just to say, and they were still doing that, and wasn't it beautiful? It's actually a focus, a reminder about theological beliefs that we have in Jesus and the simple fact that those beliefs that we have about who Jesus is and what it means to bear his image they're concretely tied to our motives and our practices in everyday life. And that includes our motives and practices about material possessions, but but this is about material possessions, and then it's also not necessarily. This section is about money, and it isn't. It's, It's setting us up for the next story. Okay? Luke, in the footsteps of Jesus, is not convinced that material wealth should be equated with divine favor. In fact, money keeps repeatedly being brought up by Jesus in the Gospel of Luke in parables and narratives as both a reflection of character and a test of faithfulness. It's, 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 it's a personality magnifier. It's not a badge of holiness. And this is a counterintuitive thing for both the people in the first century Palestine and I think in ways for us today. We naturally equate blessing with security or comfort or, or um, even, just, even, even, just, even just prosperity in general. Say, wow, that deal went really well. God blessed me. Okay. Sure, but, but do we equate blessing with just that? Is that our only understanding of blessing? Blessing is when things go great for you, and if things don't go great for you, then you're not receiving the blessing of God. Is it really that? Or, 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 or even worse, if, you're, if, if you are doing well and life is successful, that must be a reflection on your morality or a reflection on how well you're bearing the image of Jesus. And if that's not going so well, then obviously it's not. And this is a problem throughout the Gospels, right? You, I mean, you know, there's a guy born blind. And the apostle's natural question is, so where is the sin that is causing this, this, this obvious curse on this guy? Is it just his sin, or is there something that happened before, and the effects are carrying over to him? And Jesus is like, you do not understand, that you don't really understand blessings and curses like God understands blessings and curses, do you? And, and that's something that they continue to struggle with, and that's something that we will continue to struggle with, and that's why Luke puts this out here, okay? Because the message of the cross is different. It... It has, never, it has never been about equating security and comfort with blessing, okay? We, we will naturally question God's provision in times of sacrifice or want or suffering, but that, that's not the message of the cross. It never has been. And Luke's placement of this story is less about waxing rosy about how, the good, how good the church is about helping with the poor among them and more about setting the motives and the actions of the church and specifically of Barnabas up as a stark contrast with the actions and motives of two other disciples in the church, two other followers of the way, Ananias and Sapphira. See, on the outside, there is no appreciable difference 
between Barnabas' sacrifice of personal property and his, his willingness to invest in the kingdom and what Ananias and Sapphira do. You look at it from the outside, it's the same thing. Sell a piece of property, bring money, lay it at the apostles' feet. It looks the same on the outside, but what's on the inside is completely different. And the one who searches hearts knows the difference between one who is genuinely surrendered and someone who's just a seasoned imitator. Let's read this. Now a man named Ananias, this is Acts 5 starting in verse 1. Now a man named Ananias together with his wife Sapphira, they also went and they sold a piece of property. And and with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself and then brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. And then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that the tempter, the slanderer, the Satan has so filled your heart that you're willing to lie to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money that you received from the land? I mean, didn't it? It belonged to you before it was sold. And after it was sold, the money was at your disposal to do whatever you wanted. What, what would make you think of doing such a thing? Because you're not lying to men, you're lying to God. And when Ananias heard this, he fell down and he died. This is not a pretty story. It's not supposed to be. Great fear seized all who, not even just who were there, all who heard what happened. Young men who were there came forward. They wrapped up his body, carried him out, and buried him. And about three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter asks her, Please tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias paid for the land? Yes, she said, that's the price. And Peter said, How, how is it that you could agree to test and tempt the Spirit of the Lord this way? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are already at the door, and they're going to carry you out the same way. And at that moment, she also fell down at his feet and died. And the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Okay. I would love to just skip over this in our study of the Holy Spirit and, and our study of, of, of how the Holy Spirit empowers the church in Acts, I would really love to just skip over this story and just move to more miracles, more great things and everything. But I, I really appreciate the fact that Luke puts it in here. And, and I think that we have to deal with it because Luke is not going to put the church on a pedestal that we can't get to. Luke is not going to pretend that just because the church has been indwelled with the Spirit and given the mission of God and all these things, that there are not problems, that there are not hiccups, that there, that there are not big problems. And I appreciate that. Because if I didn't have stories like these, who the church is and what they look like in Acts might become this like far-fetched pattern that, that I would never be able to follow. Instead, it becomes very, very clear that, that these are real people, and sometimes they're making real, real poor choices. And, and, and the first thing that might strike us when we go to read this story is the severity of the judgment on Ananias and Sapphira. And, and in fact, it seems to kind of become a distraction for us. 
This story seems to get lumped in with kind of Old Testament genocidal accounts that are used by people that are skeptics to reinforce the notion that God is just kind of this capricious, vindictive God who is randomly dispensing death and destruction and kind of this twisted notion of morality. And, and I, would, I would challenge that because I don't think anything could be further from the truth. There is nothing random about this display. There's nothing capricious about what God's doing in the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, that, because that is exactly what Peter and Luke will attribute this to, okay? This is not, this is not, this is not, you know, this is not capricious morality. This is not, oops, you touched the ark, now you're dead. That's not what we're talking about here. This is, this is the intentional working of the Holy Spirit. God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, manifests what is true in the kingdom of heaven in earth. And that's what's been happening all throughout Acts, hasn't it? Right? Jesus has ascended and is now, now heaven can enter into earth and earth can coexist into heaven. And we just saw that happen with healing. where restoration occurs. It's the same thing. It's just, in, it's just the opposite. Okay? The spiritual motives and actions that lead to spiritual death become physically manifest as well. Just as surrender to the Spirit brings life and restoration, choosing to sever yourself from the Spirit leads to decay and death. And Ananias and Sapphira's death is symbolic, not in that it didn't really happen, but, but that it's pointing to something bigger. It's saying this is what happens when you cut yourself off from the Holy Spirit, especially when you have known the Holy Spirit. When you have known him and you still choose to cut ties and go your own way, it leads to decay and death, and we're just going to show what happens in the earthly realms of what's happening in the heavenly realm. Just so, there's, just, just so there's no confusion or no thinking that this is okay. See, it's about money and it's not. Money is just the particular personality magnifier, but you can sub it in for any one of a number of things. I think sometimes, I think sometimes we forget in our secularized existence that the first banks were temples. The first coins were stamped with images of deities. When Jesus holds up the denarius coin in Luke chapter 20, verses 24 and 25, and says, whose image and inscription is on this? He's referring to the deification of Caesar, okay? Caesar's on that coin, not because, oh, look, it's, 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 not, like, it's not like now where you've got, you know, like James Douglas. Nobody would say that James Douglas was like, a deity of Canada. Okay, like, you know, right? We're not going to make that jump, are we? If we are, we can talk later, all right? But, but, but see, that's the reason that Caesar was on that coin. It wasn't like, hey, he's a really good political leader. It was, as the Sumerians have put Baal on theirs, as the Greeks have put Zeus on theirs, we will put our deity Caesar 
on ours. He's not, Jesus is not creating a separation between the material and the heavenly there when he says give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what's God's. He is identifying kingdoms at war. He is identifying the kingdom of self-made security versus the kingdom of the self-abandoned Christ. And he's saying, you know, they're coming to him a question about, you know, like, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar? It's not just a question of civic duty. It's like, which kingdom are you under, Jesus? And Jesus is like, hang on, you, you've got this, you know, are you, are you, are you going to be under the thumb of Rome? Or are you going to lead the revolution of Judah? And Jesus is like, man, you have no idea what kingdom you're talking about, do you? We're not talking about a political kingdom. We're talking about who's God. Is Caesar God or is God God? Which kingdom are you going to be in when the kingdoms are at war? You let Caesar have what is Caesar's, and you let God have what is God's. Especially since your God doesn't make any separation between the material and the heavenly. And, and, and so, Peter makes it really clear to Ananias that this, this tithing of property, that was not some forced tribute to Jesus, like giving taxes to Caesar. It's quite the opposite. Nobody's pressuring them to sell that property. Nobody would have blinked an eye if, they'd only, if they said, we sold the property and here's half. Or we sold the property, and here's 20%. Or even, we sold property, and you know what? We need the money. Okay. That's not the point. This is not the point. The, the actions and the amounts are not the point. It is the motive creeping in of where I want to have it both ways. I want to be a good disciple, but I also want to sustain self. I want to look good, but I also want to keep doing what I want to do. I want to play both sides against the middle. And God's like, no, I don't think so. It does not work that way. And that's creeping into the transformed community of the church. And that is a critical thing that requires immediate, even severe action. In many ways, this story is linked to the sin of Achan in Joshua 7, if you know this story. Just as Israel is derailed in their progress to the promised land with this little town of Ai that looks like they're just going to totally be able to like waltz right in there, take over, and keep going, and they, they just totally get annihilated. Why? Because of the corruption of a few. Of saying, you know, I can, I can be in a journey to the promised land and I can also hold on to this other thing. I can also take these things that are consecrated for God and keep them for myself while still doing kind of the lip service of, yes, I am totally sold out and, and going into his promise. In the same way that that derails Israel, the fledgling church is also in danger of being compromised in their embodiment of God's promised spirit and the kingdom by the corruption of the few. And it leads to a really, really swift decisive action to write the attitudes of the church. And the reason it may seem like such a stumbling block to us is because, as a modern reader, it isn't because it's so severe, I think. I think it's because our modern view of sinful behavior is so low. When you think about this, what happens here? That's not severe enough to make it onto our nightly news. 
I'd be lucky if it makes it on like page eight of the Times Colonist, right? Nobody's going to bat an eye. Oh, oh, okay, so you told this person what they wanted to hear, and then you kind of went and did what you wanted to do. Oh, yeah, that happens all the time. That's a problem. See, a much better question than why did they die is why am I not in the same boat? The foundation the church is being built on here is not high moral behavior or good deeds. That's why this is so important to remember. The church is ushering the glory of God into the world by being his image bearers through the power of the Holy Spirit. Stakes are a whole lot higher than just acting good or being in a person of integrity in your dealings. It's bigger than that. Look, I love this quote. I love this quote. We may have to face the fact that if you want to be a community which seems to be taking the place of the temple of the living God in your heart, you should not be surprised if the living God takes you seriously about that. Seriously enough to make it clear that there is no such thing as cheap grace in your life. Holiness, in other words, is not an optional extra for us. The life of the disciple runs on the, on, on the two rails of grace and holiness together. It's not like you run one rail or run the other. Right? If we, won the, if we, if we run on the rail of holiness and high morality, then, I mean, we're ba all we're doing is recreating Pharisaical Judaism, right? If we, run on the, if we run on the rails of grace, we're creating something much worse. We're creating a God who says, well, I, I, I died on the cross for you. And we say, thanks, man. I, I, I appreciate that. For what? For nothing greater? For nothing greater in us? For nothing greater in our lives? Totally robs the gospel of its power. Totally robs the cross of its meaning. As we said last week, the story of Acts is all about God relocating the temple into the hearts of humanity through the Spirit. And so what's going on here is not just a moral slip. It is intentional misrepresentation of God's image. Saying that what is holy is unholy. Saying that the godless motives of self-sufficiency and covetousness that drive these conscious decisions in Ananias and Sapphira and these deceitful declarations, that those things are actually spirit-driven. Do you see that? We already have some vocabulary from what that's called from our previous studies in Luke. When you take something holy, like the spirit-filled disciple, and assume that it's okay for it to be driven by unholy desires as well, when you call the unholy holy, when you call the holy unholy, it's called what? It's called blasphemy. Remember that? Blasphemy is naming what is unholy holy. Blasphemy is naming the common as holy, and the holy is common. And so when you take the unholy desire for self-sufficiency, where I get to be in charge instead of God, and you try to marry it with being surrendered to the Spirit of God when it's convenient for me, that's called blasphemy. It's profaning the holy. 
There's a period in Jewish history that's called the Maccabean Revolution. It's a time when, for a very, very brief period, Israel was self-governing again before being conquered by the Roman Empire. And what sparked this revolution was an act of blasphemy. Maybe you know this story. In in an attempt to crush the morale of the Jews under his governance, there was a Greek leader of the Ptolemies named Antiochus Epiphanes. And he decided that he would remove the holy stigmatism from the temple in Jerusalem once and for all, and that this would somehow make the people easier to govern if their insistence on the holiness and the uniqueness of their temple was just abolished. If it was proven to them for once and for all that God was not going to strike somebody down for doing the common in the holy. And so here's what he did. He took a pig into the temple. Okay? One of the most, one of the most explicitly unclean animals according to Levitical law. Okay? Still is. Still is. takes a pig, and he and his guards muscle their way, not into the courtyard where the fellowship offerings were held, not even into the temple proper where the priestly sacrifices were offered. He waltzes into the Holy of Holies. He waltzes into the mercy seat where the resting place of the presence of Yahweh resides, where the high priest can only go once a year. And all of the ritual washing, and I mean, and, 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 and we're tying a rope around your waist in case the holiness of God strikes you dead. We can't go in there, but we can pull you out with the rope. Okay? That, that's the mindset. He waltzes in there with his pig, and he guts the pig on the Holy of Holies. Spills its blood all over, leaves the body and the entrails and everything spread all over the holiest place in Jerusalem. Now, you and I aren't even Jewish, but is there not a sense, at least a little bit of kind of disgust that wells up in you when I describe that scene to you? Just, just how on earth can you do that? I mean, the guy seriously misjudged the situation. Let's just say that, okay? Um, Because that that did not make the Jewish people easier to rule. That quite the opposite happened. Okay? They said, oh, you want to see the Lord rising up in defense of his holy temple? Well, here he comes in the form of all of us. And they drove them out. I mean, is it any wonder that that event was the thing that lit the fires of the conflagration of open revolt? Right? And yet, if the temple of Yahweh, the seat where his mercy rests and his holiness resides, is now in you and me, because of the power of his Holy Spirit, Why do I not exhibit that same revulsion in me, toward me, toward a community, when we basically go and do the same thing? I'm I'm, I'm not here to beat the sheep, church. That's not what I'm doing, okay? It's 
not what I'm doing. I'm just gonna I'm just laying out a very difficult question and saying, what are we supposed to do with it? What am I supposed to do with it? Because because this is exactly what happened to Ananias and Sapphira, and and there's a challenge here to my glib attitude toward my sinful behavior. Yes, I I serve a God who is merciful. Yes, I serve a God who is ready to forgive. Even even delighted, he says, to wipe away my sinfulness. Okay? This is not not sinners in the hand of an angry God talk. Okay? This This is not what I'm saying. He is delighted to separate me from my sin through the perfect sacrifice of his son on the cross. But, but where did I get a right to translate that mercy and forgiveness to indifference regarding my sin? Where, where I'm comfortable in the altar of my heart off, offering up the sacrifice of praise one minute and the sacrifice of pigs the next. Where, where did I go where I got to that point where I was okay with that? I mean, if anything, the closer that we are to the grace of God, the greater the offense of our sin should be, right? Not, not so that we can wander around riddled with guilt every day. That's not, that's not it either. That's not the point of this. But so that we can move purposefully into the belief that I am actually a temple of Almighty God. I am His image bearer. I am His co-creator along with Him to establish his kingdom through what the Holy Spirit's doing in me, through what the Holy Spirit's doing in us. And that means I'm going somewhere. I'm actually moving somewhere. God's actually doing something. He has a trajectory for me to look like his son. And just because his grace is the one doing the heavy lifting and the shaping, it doesn't mean I get to twiddle my thumbs, do whatever I want. It means that I am actively honing the art of surrender, of denying myself, of taking up my cross daily, and of walking in his steps as he leads. I mean, if I'm not pursuing that, then I'm not pursuing discipleship in the way of the cross. And no amount of external polishing, no amount of good morality is going to substitute for my internal nature. Apart from me, you can do no good thing says Jesus, right? And the lesson for us is that the Holy Spirit is not just interested in being your co-pilot who occasionally makes adjustments for your life. He wants direction of the whole plane. And, and wrestling with him for the yoke all the time puts me into a nosedive into the turf. That's basically what it does. That's all it does. And you know, you make those landings enough times, eventually you don't walk away from them, do you? There's an early church manuscript I've referred to occasionally. It's called the Didache. It's, it's short for the full Greek name of the document that, that translated means the teachings of the Twelve. It's not, it is not New Testament canon, but it's widely accepted as a solid resource for study, especially of the early church. It, it is a great read on early church practices. It, it's, it's kind of a hoot to read, actually, a little bit, because it's, it's almost kind of like if Willow Creek Antiquity Jerusalem Church published a, like a... a, a personnel manual for their ministry leaders. That's kind of what it's like. 
It's basically, it's basically one church leader writing to a whole bunch of junior church leaders going, okay, so you have a lot of questions about how this whole like leading church stuff works, so I'm going to answer it for you. Um, I, I'm thinking about Rebecca's baptism um, later today, and, and there's, there's, like I said, there's all kinds of fun things in there, like what to do if you want to baptize someone but can't get to a river. Evidently, this is a real problem when you're in the first century Middle East and trying to do it like Jesus did joking around a little bit but I mean you, you know but that's actually it's it, it's it's there's a few paragraphs it's like well if you can't do this then do this if you can't do this then do this well if you can't do this then do this and and I guess if you can't do any of that then try this it's just funny right it's very much a rubber meets the road kind of document and I thought it was funny to read you should check it out sometime but the whole letter is born out of a desire to connect belief to ethics and practice. And I'm going to quote it, and, and I realize when I quote it, it's going to sound like Yoda was the original writer, okay? But I, I'm, going to, I'm going to quote it, okay? This is how the whole document begins. Two ways there are, one of life and one of death. And there is a great difference between the two ways. I imagine what it would have been like if the Holy Spirit hadn't prompted Peter to confront the sin that was crouching at the edge of the church. Or, or, or worse, if the, if the Holy Spirit was totally prompting him and he didn't speak up about it. Because he was more afraid of offending somebody than living out of the truth of the matter. I wonder if the Acts story of the Holy Spirit taking over the world would even exist. You see, the church was called then, just like now, to be an alternative community. A sign, a revelation, if you will, that Christ has made a way of life possible now that does not exist anywhere else in the world. It didn't then, it doesn't now. There's supposed to be nothing like the church, church. And if this story teaches, teaches us anything, It's in who lives and who dies in this story. The, the Holy Spirit is not striking down the Sadducees or the Sanhedrin. It's not striking down Roman governors. It's not doing that. Because they are not the real threat to the church's integrity, are they? We, we spend a lot of time worrying about influences from the outside. If your Facebook feed is anything like mine, you've got people that are like, Ah! They're coming from the outside to swamp us and kill us. No, they're not. No, they're not. No, they're not. Who, who's, I'm sorry, who's powering this thing again? Is it the Lord of hosts, perhaps? Is it his Holy Spirit, perhaps, that, you know, divides waters and crushes armies and all that stuff, right? Like, he's still, he's still into that, you know, by the way. Who's running this game? Okay. Our, our greatest threat to the church is always from within. 
not without always. And that's why Luke reminds us of this fact. The greatest threat to the church is always from the inside, not the outside. The greatest threat to my spirituality and my connection even personally with Jesus is always from the inside. Not from what everybody else is doing around me. Always from the inside. To not confront the lies or the deceit. To not deal with the profaning of God's new temple, the church. That would be the death of the church. And as uncomfortable as that is for us, especially in a culture that's lost, I think sometimes all sense of accountability or the need for honest, straightforward confrontation at times. It is a necessary part of being a community that is effectively balancing the love of Christ and the holiness of Christ in us. In fact, you know something interesting? It is only here after this very, very shocking, very, very tragic story that the word church ecclesia those that have been called forth for a purpose this is the first time that it gets used not just the first time that it gets used in Acts, first time it gets used in the New Testament is right here and I think that's significant that now that word is being used to describe the believers. They have been called forth from the world into the world into the purposes of God. Somewhere in there in in struggling with money and security and motive and holiness and integrity and all those things, the Spirit crystallizes the identity of His church. And they discover who they are as a people that are called to be a community of truthfulness and faithfulness in a world of mixed motive. A faithful people in a world that makes faithfulness really problematic. A holy temple of Christ in a world that desperately needs to be saved from itself. And so then, may we, as we struggle with the art of surrender into the Holy Spirit find that same identity in us today. Let's pray together. Father, once again, I, I, I ask for your spirit to be a spirit of discernment and a spirit of illumination. Holy Spirit, I ask you to, I ask you to lay on our hearts these words. And, and, and Lord, the things that I have said that um, are taking away from your truth, I pray that they would fall that they would just slide off and, and be gone and not matter. Uh, but Lord, the things that we need to hear, the things that need to stick way, way, way deep in our identity and our souls, the, the things that need to inhabit this temple that you are creating, both in us individually and in us as the church, Lord, let those things, let those things dive deep in. Let those things stick. Let those things grow. Um, let your truth transform us, Lord. Be with us in our temptations to, to, to play both sides. Be with us in our, 
our temptations to try and, 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 and play um, to play a balance game between being wholly surrendered and self-sufficient whether it's with money or anything else God Lord most of all just, just help us to have a a, a deep, deep sense of gratitude, Lord, over over the fact that 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 we are sinful people, and yet you are still doing something with us. God, help us not to take that for granted. Help us not to have glib attitudes toward the ways that we are not like your Son. While at the same time being able to balance that with the amazing hope that you are making us like your Son. We love you, Father. Thank you for loving us. Drive us more deeply into your purposes. Drive us more deeply into your spirit.